Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm your host, Jake Lancaster, here along with Henry Sullivan, bringing you relevant clinical information to help improve your practice in medicine. Today we have Dr. Jeffrey Wright, an adult pulmonologist and critical care specialist, here to talk about severe disease and COVID-19 patients. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your clinical practice? Sure, Jake. I'm currently serving as the Medical Director of Critical Care at Baptist East. I've been part of the Baptist family for 11 years. My background's a little bit unusual in that I was a research scientist once upon a time and studied a variety of immunologic and uh, gene expression mechanisms uh, as a researcher. So that's kind of in my current clinical practice is adult pulmonary and critical care. Uh, we have a variety of different uh, things that we're interested in, but critical care is my main passion. All right. Thank you for that. Henry, can you take us through what you want to accomplish with the episode, the learning objectives? Thank, thank you, Jake. Uh, Jeff, today we'd like to present to the audience, given your, given your particular expertise in critical care medicine and our, our current experience with COVID-19, we'd love to take you through uh, not only uh, your experience in dealing with these patients and managing these patients, but also some of your thoughts on, on how, how others should think about ICU care for these COVID-19 adults and perhaps comment at some point on the, the impact of the cytokine uh, release syndrome, and then maybe then wrap it up with how, your thoughts around treatment. Uh, what do you see as some of the current treatments and maybe some comments on what you see working and not working, if that sounds okay. Sure, we've got plenty of, uh, plenty of things to talk about. <laughs> you wanna just start with kind of give us the lay of the land of what you're seeing out there right now on we're recording this on June 19th, and the metro area is seeing its largest increase in cases. Can you just give us a little bit of sense of, of what the SU is looking like right now? Yeah, sure. So we're running uh, around 85 to 90 percent capacity uh, of our ICUs. That's actually not too unusual, but it is at a reduced capacity for uh, our elective cases. Uh, so I guess a lot of people are surprised to know that elective cases go to the ICU, but uh, many do big cancer surgeries, uh, heart surgeries, uh, some other elective procedures will often spend post-operative time uh, in the intensive care unit. So we're kind of running about where we normally do in terms of uh, ICU bed utilization at Baptist Memphis. But what is unusual is that we are seeing really over the past two weeks kind of a doubling of our inpatient volume and uh, a doubling of our ICU beds that are dedicated to COVID-19 patients. So when we kind of look at, you know, people that, that have COVID-19, you know, it is, it, it certainly isn't the flu. One of the things that to keep in mind is that of adults that have it, 81% will have a mild disease, 14% will have severe disease. That usually implies that they're hospitalized. Uh, and then an, another 5% will have what we call critical illness, which is usually severe acute respiratory failure. And so the thing that's particularly concerning about that is that those that do have critical illness, the, uh, the uh, mortality in that range of patients uh, has been reported as to be as high as 50% and as low as 25%. And actually uh, across Tennessee, probably because of different patient populations, uh, that's actually about what we're seeing. So, for example, uh, in the Nashville area, the mortality is running about 25 to 30 percent, and uh, it's been running about 40 percent here in Memphis. Gotcha. Thank you for that. And you know, by the time they reach you, they're very sick. 
are, are you seeing most of these patients get intubated or are most of them developing ARDS and the cytokine release syndrome? Or could you, or do you have some that are just uh, sick enough to be intubated, but not quite meeting the criteria for ARDS and, and the other syndromes? Well, so I would say that virtually every patient that we're intubating meets the criteria for uh, ARDS. Um, we've certainly learned uh, really in the in the previous decade that there are some there are some oxygen delivery methods that we have available to us, particularly with uh, this kind of high flow nasal cannula uh, system, which is uh, uh, really very high flows of oxygen, 60 liters a minute with it is humidified. Uh, so if we use that system, we're able to uh, kind of stave off intubation, whereas we would have had to use that sooner. Uh, similarly, non-invasive mechanical ventilation can be used to avoid intubation. Uh, but a lot of those patients that are being supported with that meet the, the most recent criteria for having ARDS. Uh, we're probably able to avoid intubation in probably about half the patients that come to the intensive care unit, maybe a little bit better than that, maybe, maybe 60%. Those that, of course, do require intubation are gravely ill. We've uh, you know, we've certainly uh, seen, uh, you know, the predictions of mortality play out here locally. Uh, one of the things that is very interesting to me about taking care of these patients is that disease sort of first uh, hit our radar screens. There was, because of the severity of the disease and the fulminance of it, uh, we were seeing people kind of theorizing that we needed to be doing things differently than we have in the past. And uh, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's bearing out as um, we get more clinical experiences, this is what one of the things I think it's really important to do is really to remember to focus on the things that we do know about how to treat these patients. Because we've learned a lot about treating ARDS patients and ARDS-like patients in the last couple of decades. And we've, uh, since I've been doing this as a medical student, uh, is when the uh, ARDSnet trial came out that showed mm -hmm. using smaller tidal volumes reduced mortality dramatically. Uh, and since we've learned, then we've learned a lot of other things about uh, how to optimize mechanical ventilation, for instance, um, uh, and how to use prone positioning of patients to optimize their outcomes. So, you know, if we can concentrate on doing the things that we know work well, then that's where our best opportunity to impact these patients uh, arrives, sort of not going off the rails, so to speak, using uh, unproven technologies. Jeff, would you speak a little bit more about proning and, and when do you when do you move the patient into a prone position? Yeah, we've actually been able to do it uh, to improve oxygenation before people are intubated. You know, when, when we've had patients that have sort of a, you know, we're in a crone, uh, kind of a bed crunch situation where we don't have an open COVID ICU bed, for instance, uh, we'll prone the patients on nasal cannula oxygen from the step-down unit until we can get them into the bed. And we don't recommend that as sort of routine use. Uh, we, you know, we really, those patients that are that sick, we want to be able to watch them uh, at the ICU level of care. So we had not been using, utilizing proning, frankly, as much as we should, I think, in our in intensive care units here, but uh, we really got interested in it and uh, the nurses uh, in particular stepped up to the plate, learned how to prone these patients, because it is a, particularly when on mechanical ventilation, it is a, it's a non-trivial undertaking uh, that has some, you know, there, with somebody that's intubated, there are some real safety concerns about the technique uh, and making sure that you're very careful about how you do it, kind of developing a team approach to doing it effectively. 
But I will Thank give our, our nursing staff credit for stepping up and learning how to do that very quickly. Well, I, I was going to mention that because that, that has not been part of the, the routine management of patients in the unit. I mean, historically, and it, but it's become more popular during this during this period of COVID-19 management. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think it's going to continue to the flu patients that develop ARDS and just any other pneumonia patients that go that way? Do you think it'll continue it for, for non-COVID patients? Yeah, we really should. There was a, a randomized uh, multi-center uh, control trial uh, that was actually run by the National, the National ARDSnet Research Group that actually showed that to be beneficial So uh, probably about five years ago. And you know, like most uh, medical research, it takes five to 10 years for things to really become the standard of care. But I think it's really becoming the standard of care. We, like I said, probably underutilized it in the past. And so now it's become kind of a routine part of what we do. And I would expect that to be the case. Jeff, go, go back go back a step or two, though, in the process of intubation in these, in these COVID-19 patients with a the, with the particular concern around aerosolization. And exposure of the of the staff, are the do you take any special steps in this process, or how? What are the steps that you're you're following to protect yourself and other members of the staff in the unit as you go as you intubate these patients? Sure, we've modified our uh, our intubation techniques, and I think this is again, I think most most critical care practitioners in the United States are sort of adopting these. So we. Without anything other than anecdotal evidence, uh, we are using, uh, when we can, something called an intubation box, which is basically a plexiglass shield that sort of rests between the intubator and the team that's doing the intubation because it's not just one person. We have this plastic box that basically lets you intubate the patient and uh, at the same time kind of help protect the people around us from the, at least the big particles of an aerosolization. The other thing that we're tending to do as a standard is using a video laryngoscope rather than a direct laryngoscope because you don't have to get right down there in the patient's mouth to see what you're doing with the video laryngoscope. And uh, kind of that's sort of something that you know some people use as their routine for every intubation. Uh, and, and you know certainly that's not an unreasonable thing to do. Um, the, the other things that we do is, so for example, in the past, we always sort of, you know, the, the respiratory therapist or uh, the uh, nurse assisting or the provider doing the intubation would deliver AMBU bag ventilations rather abruptly, sometimes not even, even waiting for the endotracheal tube to be, uh, have the balloon up, but we'll make sure the balloon is up, which is a little cuff at the end of the endotracheal tube that keeps air from escaping, escaping around it. And then also, if the patient is oxygenating well enough, in other words, we've pre-oxygenated them well, their oxygen sats are okay, which frankly isn't usually the case. But if we have that opportunity, we'll go ahead and hook them up to the ventilator before we do AMBU bag mask ventilation, or AMBU, excuse me, AMBU endotracheal tube intubation, just to avoid any aerosolization of things into the room. So, and are y'all cohorting these patients into a particular area of the ICU? How are y'all dealing with, you know, trying to limit the number of staff that are taking care of, of this particular group and, and telemedicine and, and everything else that's available up there as well? How is that? Absolutely. So we're, we're really trying to utilize all that, that we can. Uh, so we have dedicated intensive care units that are COVID ICU units. Uh, either part of the whole uh, room is dedicated to an ICU, or excuse me, the whole room is dedicated to the ICU are part of the room, but ideally the whole intensive care unit uh, that with doors on each end. Mm -hmm. um, and then the patients in individualized rooms with, that are negative pressure. 
we are in terms of, uh, of course, one of the limitations of that is some of those patients were waiting for a test and they're sort of under suspicion as opposed to uh, actually having disease. So that presents some problems. Uh, but we've, uh, for example, we've changed the structure of our code blue response teams. Uh, so now it's really uh, typically it's uh, with a patient that has COVID that uh, is needing CPR. We try to limit that to f uh, three or four people in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, so you typically have somebody, you have a couple of people that are rotating doing CPR. Uh, and uh, you have somebody that's providing the ventilation and then the physician uh, or uh, advanced provider uh, running the code is uh, in the same room. As that, well. that sounds like a much better setup than the 30 people that usually go into a code blue room though. <laughs> Maybe it is. It, we still have, it's funny, we still have, you know, the people tend to want to run into the room. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that, you know, we do have enough data now that's been published. We know that, that for example, that COVID-19 patients that have cardiopulmonary arrest and the intensive care unit, their survival rate is very low. Yeah. Uh, so American College of Cardiology actually did make some recommendations for modifications to uh, the resuscitation guidelines that take into account the risk to the provider. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we've adopted some of those practices here and they include, you know, not being as aggressive with uh, ambu bag mask ventilation, not being as aggressive with the code itself, frankly. And we still do the complete algorithm, but don't go throughout the whole, whole thing Jeff, uh, for a prolonged time period of time. Jeff, it, it, it's been written that these, these patients will um, manifest a hypercoagulable syndrome uh, that um, is, is just it's rather significant. Uh, are you seeing any, any effects or, or any, any, any patients that are manifesting a hypercoagulable syndrome due to COVID-19? Uh, sure, we've seen quite a bit of that. As a matter of fact, that was, I would say that some of our early mortality patients that we saw, some of the patients that died early, were victims of that, uh, particularly manifesting as strokes. But we've had, you know, acute myocardial infarctions. We've seen a high incidence of DVT and PE as well. So typically about, probably about twice the normal rate of DVT and PE for patients in this cohort. And is that all associated with that cytokine release syndrome or HHS, or is that a completely different phenomenon? You know, I th the uh, the cytokine release syndrome is sort of it's a little bit like saying, you know, you have uh, you have a little bit of pregnancy. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, you know, it's it's a it's a spectrum. It's not just a it's a continuum of disease where you know it's not on or off. So we have some people people that don't have most everybody that comes to the intensive care unit has some measure of the cytokine storm or you know, enhanced cytokine activity. Probably, frankly, most of the people that come into the hospital have some degree of that. So it really is kind of a, a continuum in terms of severity. Uh, we've certainly seen these incidents, particularly with DVT and PE, in patients that are less severe. Um, and I think, uh, at least anecdotally, uh, there have been reports uh, across the community and things like that. And we're still, important to learn that we're still sort of in the early phases of this disease. Uh, but I think we're hearing anecdotally that patients are having strokes and DVT and PE with, without a lot of other symptoms necessarily. Uh, so it is kind of a continuum. We certainly, uh, Henry, if you can imagine one, we had a, a pregnant woman, woman with advanced uh, ARDS and um, 
you know, our, one of our biggest challenges was with her was trying to keep the uh, ECMO cannula from uh, thrombosing while it was being placed. Uh, so, uh, you know, it certainly can see people that are profoundly hypercoagulable. So, mm. yeah, it, it's a real phenomenon and, uh, and it does have real morbidity and mortality associated with it. Do you routinely anticoagulate those then that come into the unit or do you just treat them, you know, with a, with a prophylaxis? Yes, yeah, so that, that's kind of one of those areas of, um, I guess, a, you know, minor controversy in the intensive care unit world right now. Certainly, we try to give everybody that can, we try to give them chemical anticoagulation for prophylaxis at the standard dosing. It's a little bit controversial as to whether or not you should be doing that at a, you know, at say a therapeutic, a super therapeutic or a therapeutic dose for DVT or PE as the prophylaxis modality. Uh, again, there's some potential harm in that, so it's not been widely accepted. Uh, the compromise that a lot of us are, I think, more comfortable with is using aggressive anticoagulation, something like what they do in trauma surgery, where you know, instead of giving 40 milliequivalents, uh, sorry, 40 milligrams of Lovenox a day, uh, we're giving 30 twice a day. And so okay. just a little bit higher bump up. So, you know, but again, uh, it makes sense to do, but as you, uh, as we're all well aware, there are lots of instances where we do things that make sense that wind up harming patients. Right. And so it is a finding a level of equipoise between those two things. Uh, so I'm hearing you say you're not quite to the point of giving them TPA some has advocated. <laughs> no, I'm certainly not there. Again, you know, you, you only have to see TPA kill one or two patients to yeah. get too fired up about doing that. Um, yeah, that's, was, that always sounded a little risky to me. Yeah. But we have seen, you know, I mean, we've seen, I think, you know, we've seen fatal PEs uh, right. in this disease here. So, you know, again, I, I, I kind of get the concern and the urgency, but again, when, you know, because just because you're frightened of a disease doesn't mean you should necessarily do things that might harm the patient. Agree. Would you mind, since we've we've touched on this, are there any particulars around cytokine storm that you that you feel like we need to know more about? Well, I think it's. I do think it's important. I think one of the first things is that I think there is. You know, we do have some. Again, this is sort of medicine by press release at this point. But the uh, the Oxford study uh, suggesting that dexamethasone. Uh, right. Use uh, probably has, and it probably has a role in blunting that cytokine storm, but it's pretty profound. It, you know, it shows that the number needed to treat for mechanically ventilated patients to save a life is one is eight, and the number needed to treat for people that are on supplemental oxygen is 25. So, you know, that's a, you know, for a, a drug with relatively low risk that might have some, uh, might have some mortality benefit in ARDS anyway. Again, that data is all over the place over 20 years of research or 25 years of research, right. but, but it, it's a, you know, at six milligrams of dexamethasone a day, that's, that's pretty low risk for a potentially pretty high yield. So I think you're going to see uh, more and more people uh, utilizing that um, even before the data comes out. And do you think that people will stick with dexamethasone or would they go to another steroid that they're more comfortable with? You know, I'd heard other pulmonologists already using methylpred and, and other steroids. Will, will this make people switch to dex or, or what, what are your thoughts on it? Well, so uh, I think, you know, the, so the, uh, we've been using the methylprednisolone here uh, 
probably at an equivalent dose, maybe a slightly higher dose. Um, and again, the dose is, you know, super physiologic anyway, so it's all sort of arbitrary. But uh, you know, it's not a it's not a very high dose. So I, I think we'll, you know, there are reasons to use the dexamethasone primarily that it has fewer less mineral mineral corticoid effects than any of the other steroids i mean that's why it's part of the dexamethasone suppression test so um there were a lot of people sort of postulating that we should be using dexamethasone as the go-to drug anyway because part of the um part of the problem with this disease is the pulmonary edema that is part of the non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema that's part of ARDS. And so there was early on, again, I think we probably, as a community of physicians worldwide, uh, because there was this concern about patients getting too much fluid, there was this notion that we should keep them dry. I think that's probably still true, uh, but I think also we might've been pushing the limit a little bit by diuresing them maybe too aggressively. So again, there's a balance there, but because there's less of a mineral corticoid effect with dexamethasone, it sort of makes sense to stick with that. And again, you know, my own preference is to stick with the drug that you have data for. Right. Um, am I now concerned that there's going to be a worldwide dexamethasone shortage next week? Yes. Because <laughs> that's probably the next logical thing, right? Well, um, I'm already taking it prophylactically, so we're good. There. <laughs> oh, well, again, yeah, that's interesting because it does, you know, it the uh, the real benefit for it, and we're going to probably see people doing that too, right? Is that giving the steroids early is thought to be is thought to be potentially a negative thing to do, uh, yeah. and it certainly has been proven to be. Uh, negative for the MERS and uh, SARS-1 uh, because you, by reducing, by increasing immunosuppression uh, early in the course of the disease before you become symptomatic, you may lead to enhanced uh, viral expression and proliferation. And so you may actually, you, you appear to make the disease worse. So uh, the data suggests that, again, we don't have much access to the data. I had a little bit of it leaked to me from a friend and, but what it does suggest is that there's no benefit in sort of the early infection kind of stage and that really uh, that this, the pulmonary phase of the disease where you start to have hypoxemia uh, all the way through the, the later stage of this kind of hyperinflammatory cytokine storm kind of thing, uh, that's where you see the real benefit. So I know Henry's got to jump off at four, but Henry, you want to give any closing comments and then I'll ask Jeff some additional questions. I, I, so I, Jeff, I really appreciate you you coming on with Jake and me today. And, and I, I know the rest of the, the, the listening audience has learned a lot about the critical care management of the COVID-19 patient. And I appreciate you taking some time to, to teach Jake and me uh, as well. Uh, it is certainly a challenge to manage these folks in the in the intensive care unit. And I appreciate you coming on with us today and sharing sharing your experience and your knowledge. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Henry. You have time for just a few more questions? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about anything. I'm post-call, don't have to work tonight. Family's good not deal. here, so it's good. <laughs> well, I'm keeping you from a good Friday afternoon though. So I'll just you know ask you a couple more questions about uh, what are your thoughts on the evolution of the treatment and therapeutics for, for COVID-19 over the past three months? It's been a short period of time and been a lot of evidence published and practices have been changing, it seems like, every month. What were you doing in the beginning and, and what are y'all kind of leaning towards now? Yeah, it has been really, uh, it's been really pretty exciting uh, in terms of just partly because the I think 
one of the uh, it's a double-edged sword, but the the rate at which we're able to exchange uh, information uh, as uh, you know internationally now uh, because of the internet and social media. Uh, has really, I think, opened up the opportunity to to adopt new practices more quickly. You know, at the same time, we've seen a lot of things that were potentially harmful thrown out there as, uh, you know, the next best thing. Uh, Everything from, you know, dramatically changing the way we uh, handle mechanical ventilation, which again was, uh, there's a that's a whole slippery slope that we can talk about if you want, but it's pretty boring to people that don't do it for a living. Um, to, as you mentioned earlier, the you know routine use of uh, TPA for patients for mm-hmm. uh, DVT prophylaxis. So you know, so I think you know we have changed relatively slowly. Uh, I, I I think we were very progressive at, at Baptist in terms of you know how we dealt with treating disease. We were we were certainly happy to entertain. Looking at, for example, Plaquenil, uh, hydroxychloroquine, when it first came out, uh, we pretty, you know, again, I think most of us that had given it some thought and had kind of a, a molecular or uh, biology background didn't really expect it to do much because there's really not much of a, a mechanistic pathway there for it to really have been successful. So, you know, we were, I think, as a group, you know, for example, Dr. Threckold, uh, Dr. Gorhoff, uh my partners are treating this disease. We we didn't have a problem dropping plaquenil from the armamentarium uh, yeah. pretty early on when we started to hear noise that it wasn't working. So uh, we, but similarly, we're I think we're adopting uh, things like uh, steroids uh, early on, and then uh, we're uh, you know again it did sort of push us to to adopt things that we should have been doing. For example, the prone positioning. I think it's really something that we should be doing routinely on our patients. So we also learned, you know, that we were, we, because of, you know, I think one of the things that we're still struggling with, that I think is an interesting problem uh, and one that we're going to be faced with for at least another year is how do we manage these patients, uh, particularly in the intensive care unit, but also even outside the intensive care unit where delirium pay plays a huge role. And as you know, uh, delirium is associated with an adverse outcome and increased morbidity and mortality. And uh, preventing delirium is a a multifaceted thing that, you know, that involves uh, using the right medications for sedation in the intensive care unit. Uh, For example, avoiding benzodiazepines, particularly Ativan. Mm-hmm. Um, and but also engagement with the patient, you know, getting the patient to have PT and OT even while they're still on the ventilator, getting them out of bed even while they're on the ventilator. And because of the burden of the contact isolation and respiratory isolation that's involved in these patients, uh, it's very hard to do those things, particularly, you know, uh, we, we, have ver- we have very little opportunity for family engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly after the patients get intubated uh, and sort of are no longer in the position of being able to, you know, pick up their, their cell phone and talk to their families themselves. So I think one of the things and then, but just the whole, you know, ordeal of going into a room, uh, right. you know, uh, what I call the temptation to use telemedicine. I actually don't like to use telemedicine because I think it's important for the doctor to go in and talk to patients. They're scared. Uh, they don't really want their doctor so scared of them that they won't even come into the same room with them. I think that leaves them pretty unsettled. So at least, and they'll tell you that if you ask. 
<laughs> uh, so yeah, and, and that's interesting because you know we rolled out telemedicine early April, and at the height of April, we were doing about seven hundred of these uh, inpatient telemedicine visits a day, and that was really dropped in May. And I haven't checked in June, but it had decreased to about four hundred. And I feel like early on there was you know, more more interest on the physician side of using telemedicine. I, I think it's declined a little bit, um, given what you just said, just that need to go into the patient's room and make sure they're not scared and to really be there for them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I mean, I've had a couple of interactions where it just really struck me how, how the, the social isolation that we're imposing on these patients. Um, and I'm hardly unique in this. Uh, I mean, one of my mentors uh, is a guy named Wes Ely. Uh, who's at Vanderbilt, who uh, is really one of the world's leaders in ICU delirium. And uh, I mean, this is one of his big, now one of his big uh, talking points as well. But it really is, you know, you're really just kind of struck with how that, and that's going to impact the patient's outcomes. Because again, right. part of that, you know, part of mortality for ICU patients, even six months out, is, is whether or not they experienced um, significant delirium or not. Yeah, that post ICU syndrome, and these patients are staying in the ICU for you know, weeks, long time. time it seems yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the other things that's kind of interesting about this disease is it's not, you know, the flu. You know, seven to ten days long. Most people are out of the hospital after you know a week. <laughs> uh, this disease is two to three weeks long, and sometimes longer. Wow. Uh, you know, you don't really start getting sick until you know a week into it. I mean, you have, you feel bad for a week, and then you get really sick if you get if you're one of the you know, 20% that get really sick. So, and we've certainly seen people, uh, you know, stay in the ICU requiring substantial oxygen, uh, maybe be off the ventilator, but require uh, high flow nasal cannula for weeks at a time. Um, and uh, the other thing that's, that's related to that is, is some of these patients are going to have permanent lung damage. And we don't know what the percentage of that is, but, we think it may be relatively high. You know, well, I saw we, a couple got lung transplants around the country. Yeah, so I think there have been a couple in the United States now. The first one was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I've heard at least uh, I know a friend that uh, is involved in a transplant program at another place uh, told me that they were they had a candidate that they were looking at doing a transplant on uh, and expected mm -hmm. to within the week. So, yeah, so that's going to be. You know, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, unfortunately, interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah, and so for these patients that are staying a long time, are, are we all using the immunologics and convalescent plasma as well? Yeah, so I would say almost uh, almost all the patients now um, are being considered for convalescent plasma if they have acute hypoxemic respiratory failure mm -hmm. uh, that's signif significant. Similarly, we're using remdesivir. The uh, and that's you know I have to give you credit for that because you've made that that whole process uh, in Epic. Uh, pretty easy to access. Um, you know, one of the things I hear from other providers is that they have a hard time getting it. And again, I think all this, you know, obviously there's a lot of a lot of people behind the behind all oh, this that make yeah. it happen. But uh, the pharmacists have done a great job of getting getting a pipeline to the for the access to it. And so, yeah, we've been using remdesivir. Uh, we've been using, uh, for example, the uh, uh, the anti IL IL six. Uh, uh, receptor therapies to, in particular, mm -hmm. tocilizumab. Again, that's an off-label off use for that drug. 
uh, and does have some potential for long-term complications. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it does seem to be, again, you know, it's potentially effective. Now, is it gonna be more effective than just simply giving somebody dexamethasone? It's hard to know, <laughs> really. Right. You know, and I think uh, probably the, uh, uh, the people that uh, write all the checks will probably be happier if we use uh, dexamethasone rather than tocilizumab. So. <laughs> uh, but we're also looking at a couple of other potential drug studies uh, that kind of fall into the immunomodulatory domain. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, I wanted to get your perspective on what, what studies are you looking to come out? What future results are you looking for to, to guide therapy for this disease? Well, so there is, uh, so for example, for there, there are ongoing randomized uh, controlled trials for uh, tocilizumab uh, that uh, I suspect are probably getting to the point where they'll be able to uh, publish their data. So that'll be interesting to see. There are, I, I really want to, I frankly really want to see the, the published data on the dexamethasone. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, like I said, I think it's a low risk intervention in terms of complications for the patient, at least on the, for an inpatient where you can monitor their blood glucoses and things like that. But, but I really, you know, we really want to see the data to make sure that we're doing the right thing for patients. As we've seen with some of these other studies, what looked good uh, from the press release when you put it under the microscope wasn't quite so good. No, for sure. Yeah. I think it's going to be important to see. Um, any other drugs, therapies you're looking for, any other Vaccine trials, I don't know those are way off, ways off, but. Yeah, um, you know, the vaccine trials, I'm not, you know, I don't know if we'll, uh, I hope we'll have the opportunity uh, to participate in those. Uh, there are a couple of, uh, I will tell you, there are a couple of drugs that we're looking at here at Baptist. Uh, I don't think I can really sort of come out and say we're, uh, we haven't signed any papers or anything like that. So I really don't know that we can say that we're participating in those yet, but they're interesting. Again, sure. they kind of follow into this, uh, you know, advanced um, uh, kind of immunomodulatory kind of model of looking at, at interrupting the cytokine storm. There are some studies ongoing with um, with monoclonal antibodies directed at COVID-19. I think those will be interesting. I think that's going to be a potential therapy that will, because that's basically just, you know, specialized convalescent plasma <laughs> or generalized oh, yeah. convalescent mm -hmm. plasma. And uh, so that's a potentially interesting set of studies that could come out. And then, of course, the convalescent plasma. We're lucky enough to be participating in this really observational trial that the Mayo Clinic is doing. I think Dr. Gorha uh, was on your podcast talking about that recently. But right. um, I think that's, I, I, you know, we want to see the results for that. We kind of, even when you, you know, it's, I think it's important to recognize as clinicians that when you're, even if you're only, if you're treating a couple hundred patients and it's like, yeah, okay, we're doing okay. And, and people are getting better. You still don't know if that's just anecdotal or bias or, or a real signal. You know, you, you just don't know until you see the data, you know, from literally thousands of patients to know if what you saw was a real thing. So we're, we're using convalescent plasma we're going, hey, you know, that that might have worked. Right. Um, you know, but uh, it's like I would tell people, you know, when I was skeptical, skeptical of, hot, of Plaquenil, that, you know, frankly, every patient, probably the first 20 patients that we had that died, uh, every one of those patients got Plaquenil. And it didn't, I don't think it, in that case, again, only 20 people, I don't think it hurt any of them, but it obviously didn't help them. <laughs> And so that's, you know, so as we use all these drugs, it's hard to avoid having some optimism and hope that they'll work, but you really don't know until you see the data. 
Oh, yeah, no, I mean, it's been interesting to see where we've gone in three months. It'll be interesting to see where we are in three months and another year, you know, uh, we're still using the same therapies or how things have changed. I know, you know, we've spent a long time on this and I appreciate your time this afternoon talking to us. Are, are there any, any other topics you want to close with? Any future directions you want to tell the audience about? Well, I think one of the things that I think that we have an opportunity to use uh, really regionally uh, that we're not utilizing adequately is what's called now called the A2F bundle. That means the ABCDEF bundle. Uh, it's also known as the IC Liberation uh, Project. Um, but that's a, uh, we were actually lucky enough to participate in a, a large uh, national uh, study that looked at implementing that um, as a performance improvement initiative. Uh, and we saw that it dramatically reduced the morbidity and mortality uh, of patients. But it really requires, and it's kind of a try, you know, kind of a uh, maybe an overused phrase, but it really does require on the part of, particularly on the part of physicians, but also on nursing staff, kind of a paradigm shift in how you think about sedation. You know, we're often used to uh, walking through an ICU and seeing a bunch of people knocked out on a ventilator. And it turns out that that that's harmful to the patients. And what they really need to be is they need to be comfortable and uh, awake on a ventilator. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have any sedation, but, but they should have low levels of sedation. And that in particular is probably the most important thing that we need to do. And we need to do better as, um, as a system in utilizing that bundle of care. And, you know, again, as you know, Jake, those, we have order sets built into Epic for people to use that. And that requires a tremendous amount of training on the part of the end of life staff, um, uh, nursing, respiratory therapy, occupational therapy, respiratory therapy, a whole, and physicians, the whole team has to be educated on, on the benefits and how to use it. Uh, but it really is, I think, one of the, that's part of the low, low hanging fruit uh, that we have that we can uh, can pick off a tree and improve our mortality. And again, because of the isolation that these patients are in, uh, it does make meeting those goals a lot more challenging. Uh, having a prone patient, um, it's a lot harder to keep them sedated uh, and comfortable uh, than it is and uh, to keep them, frankly, from just screwing something up by rolling over and pulling something out. <laughs> so we have to kind of, you know, keep that balance in mind. But but again, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for all of us to improve what we're doing for our patients by using things that are proven to work. Yeah, no, that, that's one of the biggest takeaways I'm, I'm taking from this conversation is you know, this crisis, if it's done anything, it's it's shown us that just really good, high quality ICU care is what we should have been doing for, for patients even before COVID-19. And, and it has drawn a lot of attention to it. And when, it, as you've said, we've changed a lot of our practices to things we should have been doing beforehand and hopefully that those will keep continue to spread and and spread to other populations outside of COVID-19 as well. Uh, and we should really focus on making those best practices more widely available and more widely used while we wait on some of these therapeutics that seem to just be maybe adding some slight benefit on the margins. Yep, absolutely. All right, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I hope to have you back on in maybe a couple of months where you can give us an update and see where we are at that point. Um, but Anytime you want to come on, just let me know and, and I'll bring you back on. Okay. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate your time. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. All right. Thank Talk to you later, man.
Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Right Care Baptist. Please remember to look on the show notes for the link to the CME survey and send any feedback to jake.lancaster at bmhcc.org.